welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. At the outset, just let me say that this has been a uh, weekend of Juneteenth activity, which commemorates the announcement of the issuance of the January 1st, 1863 Emancipation Proclamation to the enslaved residents of Galveston, Texas, which did a didn't occur until June 19th of 1865. We commend those of you who faithfully kept this celebration alive over the years. And to those who promoted it as an African-American holiday, and those of you who have joined in the celebration since it became an official federal event in 2021. We hope that this weekend's activities in which you have been engaged, have been educational, inspiring, and productive. Now to our discussion this evening. On January 6, 2020, the nation's capital was the site of an insurrection as over a thousand people invaded its chambers in an unsuccessful effort to prevent the official counting acceptance and certifying of the results from the November 2019 election for president of the United States. Since that time, hundreds of people have faced prosecution for their role in this event. In the face of fierce opposition from Republican congressional representatives, the House of Representatives impaneled a select committee to investigate this insurrection and to determine what occurred, how it occurred, and who were its responsible parties. Last week, after interviewing over a thousand witnesses and exploring thousands of pages of documents and email messages, members of that House committee began a series of public hearings to present their findings to the American public. As we discuss this topic tonight, those hearings are continuing, but we wanna provide you with an assessment of the explosive and well-documented findings that the committee has presented thus far. Joining us for this discussion is Al Atkinson, a political science professor who has taught at several area colleges and universities, including at NCCU. He is an author, a political activist, and the co-host of the long-running and highly acclaimed Connections program, which airs on our sister network, Foxy 104-107, on Sunday morning. Um, Val, thank you for joining us uh, this evening for our discussion. Well, thank you for the invite, Irv. It's good to be here. Well, you know, to start us off, in, in, in case there are a few members of our audience that's not aware of, uh, of your history and background and your work with uh, Connections and that long running uh, program. Can you just kind of describe 
what Connections is, uh, is, is all about and how long it's been uh, running and the uh, impact and effect of uh, that uh, program on our sister network, sister network over at Fox. Well, I'd like to think, uh, Herb, that we began long before uh, we talk about connections or Foxy 104 or any of those things, because back in the day, in the 80s, there was only uh, uh, 107.1. It was uh, a very small station located in Durham uh, at about 50,000 watts. Uh, that was at its peak. Uh, and it had a talk show that ran for one hour every Sunday morning, and it was live. They decided to go to two talk shows, and I came on, and it was in 1990, I do believe, when I first came on the air with the show called Around the Triangle, because all we talked about were issues involving uh, Durham, Wake, and Orange Counties, primarily. Uh, that developed into the station buying or hooking up with, as it were, uh, another network called WFXK uh, out of Tarboro, which was a 104.3 station. We merged the two stations and called it Foxy 107-104, and we had 150,000 watts. And our terrestrial signal went from as far west as uh, Gifford, I'm sorry, as far west as uh, Forsyth County, uh, as far north as Petersburg, Virginia, all the way to the coast and as far south as Fayetteville. That was a big circle before internet came about and now we can be accessed anywhere you receive the uh, internet or you've got internet services. Uh, go online and go to Radio One or Urban One, and it has a list of all of the stations. Click on Foxy 107, 104, and you're online and you have access to our show. We've been live and working, Herb, I'm glad to say, for over 32 years, and we are continuing to do so. But for anybody who thinks that's a long time, I have a picture on my desk right here. One of my favorite heroes, his name is Ford. Nelson, and he used to be a piano player with B.B. King. He left that to get into radio, WDIA in Memphis, Tennessee, and he retired in 2014. But when he retired, he had been on the radio continuously for 64 years. Mm. That is more than many folks have lived. So he's one of my heroes. So my 32 years are just halfway to where I'm trying to go. Okay, and, and Bell, your 32 years puts you in the leadership role in this area uh, here. And we certainly appreciate all that you have uh, provided uh, to us uh, over the years and uh, your uh, connection with the uh, political process, uh, not only in this area, but uh, around the country and keeping us abreast of uh, the news and political commentary and analysis that you have uh, provided on a ongoing and consistent basis. And I, I have to just uh, admit that uh, of late, 
uh, I have been uh, honored uh, with an invitation from uh, Val uh, to uh, join uh, Connections on this uh, Sunday morning program as a uh, legal analyst. Uh, that's the title that I receive. I don't get any pay uh, for it, uh, but just to be connected with Val is all the pay uh, that, uh, that I need. And uh, so I thank you for that, uh, that opportunity. Uh, but I do want to just say, because you know, you you've been actively involved in this this political process over the years. Uh, you know what is uh, what is uh, going on. Uh, normally, normally, what happens after uh, a presidential election has occurred, and between that period of uh, the second Tuesday in uh, November and uh, the uh, uh, certification of that uh, in, uh, in January. What is it that you would expect or has happened historically uh, with the uh, transfer of political power in this country? Well, first of all, the first thing that happens, a lot of people are unaware of, is the ascertainment uh, letters or pieces that are sent from each state uh, after it's been attained, who won that particular state by a, a count. Uh, seven letters of ascertainment are sent, in some cases by the Secretary of State, in many cases by the legislature or the governor. And that starts the whole process. Many people are unaware, uh, Herb, that uh, we vote on the second, uh, on the Tuesday in November, following uh, the Monday. And uh, they think that that's the end of it, the short and the long of it. The actual voting for president happens on the on the first uh, second Wednesday after the first Monday of December. Uh, that's when uh, the electors go to their particular states and cast their votes. Uh, once that's done, uh, they send by ascertainment letter again pieces to the leader of the president of the Senate, they happen to be the vice president. He is to uh, take this information, open it in front of a joint session of the Congress and read the winners of the presidency and the vice presidency. Now that's what normally is supposed to happen. And it has happened that way uh, since uh, the Republic began. Uh, but we know from uh, following uh, the procedures here uh, in the 1-6 committee reporting that there was an attempt to stop that from happening. And uh, Mike Pence uh, was, he was the president of the Senate simply because of his position as uh, the vice president of the United States. And uh, he did his job. And he yeah. not had done his job we may be in a different place right now in this country and have somebody other than Joe Biden as president of the United States. Well, you know, I think you, you, make, you make an excellent point that uh, for most of us, uh, the mundane activities that occur uh, between election day and the certification uh, is basically something that we know very little about. We don't read about it in the paper. It typically is a small little blurb in the, in the uh, news that the uh, electors from uh, each uh, state uh, have uh, met 
And then uh, on the uh, certification, we see a little blurb that uh, Congress has counted and certified uh, the election and uh, people don't even think about it uh, twice. Now, with, with, with that background that, that you had, in November uh, 2019, did you have any inkling that there would be some conflict uh, resulting from the uh, 2019 uh, vote account and, and doing the uh, certification process? Uh, none at all, uh, because normally there is a time that's specified uh, uh, in the 12th Amendment. There's a time frame in which the states have to talk about any irregularities within the uh, whole certification process. And that time frame is uh, seven days uh, before the certification standpoint. And nothing happened. Uh, nobody stepped forward and said, we, we got some problems here in North Carolina, for example, uh, that we can't certify this vote. Uh, and uh, so you wouldn't get any idea that anything is wrong. And we marched forward to uh, the uh, joint session of Congress for things to happen, thinking everything is going to be certified. There were some rumblings in some of the states. We know that what uh, Trump tried to do in Georgia. We know what they tried to do in Arizona. Uh, but nothing to the extent that uh, Pence couldn't go forward uh, to read the winners of the election. When, when, when did you first become aware? And, and, and I, I emphasize you because you are watching these things closely because that's what you do. Uh, when, when, when did you first become aware that uh, things weren't uh, going uh, as advertised as has happened in the uh, past? And what was your reaction uh, to that as the, uh, I guess the uh, leaves began to be knocked off the table in, uh, with respect to the normal process? Well, mine goes way back, Irv. It goes way back to something the 45th president said when asked by repeated uh, journalists and reporters, will you, accept the result of the 2020 election if you are not declared the winner. His answer every time was, I will if it's fair, if they didn't cheat. And I knew right then that we had problems coming because he was preparing the groundwork at that time to call the entire election a fraud if he did not win. Well, is it necessary for him to declare that he is the loser in this uh, campaign in order for the process to move forward? No, he has just about, about as much uh, to do with this as he does any amendment. The president has no role in an amendment that's passed, and the president has no role uh, in certifying or validating the results of an election. So your answer is no, he doesn't have any role. So I guess this is, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Amy. Oh, no, I was just gonna follow up on, on your question, or which is, so um, you, you knew that, that Trump was setting the stage to be able to challenge 
at, at what point did you realize that we were going to hear more or there was going to be more than just rhetoric, right? So we had already been used to um, strange um, propositions coming out of this individual's mouth. But what happened was beyond what many folks had imagined could happen in this country. At what point in your mind were you like, this is a, this is a different situation in terms of the challenge to uh, the election results? Well, what happened to mine, uh, in my mind uh, to make it uh, feel that this was gonna be different and maybe I was a late thinker or coming late to the game, I don't know. But it was the insurrection itself uh, on one six, uh, because I waited. Uh, I, as far as I was concerned, there was a lot of rhetoric out there and a lot of other things going on. But I hadn't seen uh, any violence, any physical activity, uh, any of that. And as far as I was concerned, that was going to be a demonstration uh, pro-Trump, anti uh, establishment type of uh, demonstration. And when it turned into what it did, frankly, I was surprised. This is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and uh, we're going to take a break uh, right now. We're going to continue our discussion with uh, Val Atkinson, uh, who is a uh, political science professor, uh, formerly uh, teaching at North Carolina Central University of Political activist, author, and co-host of the uh, Connections program on Foxy 107104. Uh, we're going to take our break right now. I want you to stay with us, and we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we continue this discussion about the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection and the uh, ongoing uh, House committee hearing uh, that, uh, that seek to find answers to what happened uh, during that uh, event. And we're talking with uh, Val Atkinson, a uh, political scientist, 
uh, who's taught at uh, a number of uh, universities around the uh, area, including NCCU, and is co-host of the Connections Program on Foxy uh, 107, uh, 104. Uh, well, <clears throat> uh, you, 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 looking back at this, this history, and uh, you indicated that uh, January 6th was your awakening as to what was occurring. What was your reaction when you saw what was playing out uh, in, uh, in, in, in Washington on January 6th? My first reaction, the first thing that told me something is awry here, something is not right, was when I saw the Capitol Police officers escorting some of the protesters in, shaking hands with them, glad-handing, and I was saying this is not right because there had been some demonstrations with Black Lives Matter protesters that happened not too, in the not-too-distant past. They weren't treated that way. I knew that there was something going on here. And then when uh, the protesters, quote unquote protesters, felt that they weren't being given enough deference, they took it upon themselves to let themselves into the Capitol building and it became violent. And uh, I, I called one of my uh, colleagues and I said, uh, I hope you're watching because it's on now. I don't know where it's gonna go from here, but it's on, I knew it. We were in for a fight and it could go either way. Yeah, Val, so you mentioned the contrast between the way the insurrectionists were treated versus those that were protesting um, as part of the Black Lives Matter movement. As you were observing what was happening um, with the Capitol on January 6th, I know when, when I was observing it, I was imagining what the reaction would have been if it had been black and brown people. Were you surprised um, or just what was your reaction to um, all of the, the conduct of the insurrectionists in terms of being in the Capitol, in terms of being in uh, Speaker Pelosi's office, for example? I mean, the, the, the hubris in a way, um, in terms of the comfort level of these individuals to engage the Capitol Police officers, um, be inside the Capitol, and the, the confidence it, they seem to have had, what was your reaction in observing that? Well, in full disclosure, I'll have to say that uh, I also served time in the military, and I understand the relationship between uh, military, paramilitary organizations and such. I lived in DC for a long time and I realized that a lot of the people on the Capitol Police Force got their uh, people from retired military personnel, ex-police officers. They had a commonality, a bond, if you will. So when I saw them uh, being given deference and that kind of thing, that's something I had been expected, but I, I thought it was a little too much. I thought this is going off the rail here. We, it's problematic. I don't know where it's going. And then when the cameras went inside and we saw 
on the floor, on the floor of the Capitol building itself, the Confederate flag, we saw people dressed up in costume wear that was anti-American. We saw things that to me was meant only one thing. There's no respect for the law. There's no respect for the nation. Uh, there's no respect for those police officers and the job that they have to do. And this thing is going to get out of hand much, much more quickly than some people realize. And the last thing that I kept asking myself, where is the National Guard? Whose responsibility is it to bring in the National Guard to quell down this uprising? Uh, and of course, we know from hindsight how that went and why there was no National Guard sent. Uh, it was all in forethought. People had thought about it in the beginning. Uh, whose responsibility is it to call out the National Guard? Uh, we, we had the chief of police of uh, the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C., uh, making a position that in this case, it wasn't his responsibility. He was on the phone talking with the Capitol Police, asking whose job is it to call out the National Guard? People in the White House were saying, well, somebody in the military has said that the National Guard is not needed. You need to call General Milley. Confusion abound. That's why the National Guard didn't get there, I found out later on. But it was all planned for, like a good, smooth running military operation. Where are they going to get their defense once we uh, overrun the front line? What can we do to abate that so they, when they call for the defense, it's not there? This was all a surgical military planning piece. And uh, I knew then we were in trouble. Well, you know, jumping from, from the, the day of January 6th uh, to now the uh, House Select Committee with its uh, report on uh, what uh, has occurred. Uh, first of all, your reaction to the impaneling of the uh, House Select uh, Committee. And uh, I mean, cause this is historic. This has never happened uh, before. Uh, what's your assessment of how effective and efficient that they've been in gathering information about what occurred uh, leading up to and uh, on uh, January 6th? Well, let me first of all say that I think they, they've done a great job so far and they've got my ear and my eye uh, for the rest of this entire process. I am particularly pleased and glad uh, that Kinzinger and of course Cheney are part of this whole process. Uh, without them, this would be uh, a thing set up for the opposition to claim illegitimacy. Uh, so that being said, I look to see how they move forward. I have particular personal interest because I think it's, it's a dichotomy here in a, in a way. I'm not sure if they can do both well. That is put up a show that is for the consumption of the American public on the one hand, and then at the same time provide legal ammunition for the Justice Department for Merrick Garland to use on the other hand, if they wanted to bring charges. I'm looking to see 
where the committee itself has placed most of their eggs in this basket? Are they trying to primarily uh, change the minds and hearts of average Americans by saying, see, this is what's going on? Or they are trying to give fodder to the Justice Department to bring charges for those people responsible for this insurrection, trying to overthrow the government of the United States of America. I'm, I got an eye out to see where the committee is leaning. And I hope it is the latter. I hope they are trying to find out who the culprits were, who the conspirators were, and bring charges. I don't think it's enough of a deterrent to say if you try to overthrow the United States of America, your punishment is that you can't run for political office anymore. I don't, I don't believe that's a deterrent at all. It must be far, far more than that. So it's interesting that you were talking about this dichotomy. So is the purpose of the hearing to educate the public or to lay out a case for um, the Department of Justice? And you know, the opening statements from Liz Cheney were interesting in terms of how she laid it out. So, you know, I, I think you're right that the committee has thought long and hard and they've been very intentional about how they are laying it out. And she kind of, um, in terms of, of uh, setting the framework for the hearings and the sessions to come, what, you know, what we will prove, what we will show. She really did kind of lay it out like a, a prosecutor. I thought what was really effective, though, is that the way in which um, she did it and the, and the way the hearing has progressed, there's been the use, the strategic use of videos and the strategic use of witnesses um, such that it, it has been one of the more engaging hearings that we have seen thus far, because, you know, we, of course, had the Mueller report um, hearings, we've had two impeachments, and, and it does seem that this hearing has a um, different way of engaging the public. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on how successfully, even if they can't do both, um, uh, even if they can't do both in terms of um, uh, persuading the public and laying out a case. Can you share your thoughts on how effective the hearings have been thus far in terms of engaging the public and telling a story and details of the story that we may not have been yet aware of? Well, I think they've been very successful so far. Uh, and I think the, call, the reason for that is that this has become the difference between this and the more recent uh, uh, programs that we've seen for impeachment uh, and, and the like, both impeachments, is that this was a production. I don't want to say Hollywood, but it was a theatrical production. It had a producer on. And it's really a design uh, to get, the, get and hold the attention of the public. Now, that's what they're doing. That's why they're so good at this. That's why it seems uh, so impactful. Now, and you guys would know more about this than me, but to give the Justice Department uh, the ammunition that they need to bring forth a case is a different issue. It's a different ballgame altogether. Some of those points that uh, some of the citizens or viewers would go hurrah, hurrah for, you know, may not be uh, come up to the level 
of wanting to use to indict someone. So, so we're talking two different issues here. And uh, I, to me, for my money, I'm saying that they have uh, put most of their eggs on the side of convincing the American people that something bad did happen here and we should punish them by voting somebody out of office or voting somebody else into office. Uh, and But it doesn't answer my question. My question goes back to what happens to the culprits. What happens to the lawbreakers? We, that's what I want. I want something to happen there. Well, you know, Val, as, as a uh, senior politi political commentator, uh, you were, of course, around during the uh, Nixon era uh, when uh, there were the uh, Watergate uh, hearings. Uh, Sam Irving, uh, the uh, senator from North Carolina, served as the chair of, the, uh, of those uh, proceedings. Can you just kind of briefly compare the differences between those Watergate hearings and what it is that we are now witnessing uh, with respect to the uh, January 6th insurrection uh, hearing? Well, uh, uh, first of all, the biggest difference uh, in, in the Watergate hearings and what we are doing now uh, is that there was an impeachment process that led up to the final act of the Watergate piece. Uh, and, and because before then, there was a lot of who shot John, uh, who wants to go on the record, uh, what evidence do you have? Who is Deep Throat? Uh, you know, what happened to the 18 minutes on the tape? Uh, who's getting fired? Uh, it was a lot of that. But, but after the tapes were released, the, uh, the, the court uh, ruled that uh, Nixon did, in fact, have to release the tapes. And people heard him conspiring with John Dean to pay people for illegal activities, uh, people said that is high crimes and misdemeanors. We're, we're going to impeach this guy. So the impeachment process started. Now it's going way beyond uh, Irvin and his investigation. This is impeachment. And the impeachment process started. He was impeachment, uh, impeached. Uh, and in fact, uh, Senator Goldwater, who at that time was the uh, Republican leader in the Senate, actually counted votes. He, he was not only the leader, he served as whip as well, and he was counting votes. And when he went up to uh, Richard Nixon and said, listen, uh, I've counted some votes and you have five votes in the Senate. And mine is not one of them. When he told him that, Nixon knew that it was over. Uh, and, and sort of the rest is history. But leading up to that, there were a lot of things, if we want to just compare the committee, there was a lot of things that happened that I don't see yet that we have in the 1-6 committee. Uh, for an example, I asked some questions such as, you know, where is our deep throat? Where, where is our... Woodward and Bernstein. Who's uh, Alexander Butterfield? He played a crucial role in Watergate because he was the one that said, yes, there are tapes. There is a taping system in the White House and everything's been taped. 
the firing of uh, Ehrlichman and Haldeman uh, and Dean uh, to some point. The firing of your Justice Department people, Saturday Night Massacre, the replacement of all of that. Uh, in the end, Trump, uh, I'm sorry, Nixon was tightening the noose around his own neck. And he had no other place to go once Goldwater left than to tell him that uh, it's time to go. We're not there yet. We're not even close to that. So it's, it's two different pieces. Mm -hmm. And after having gone through two impeachments already, it's, you know, the, the nature of the time suggests that we may not be there at all. And we'll get a chance to explore this a little bit more and get your thoughts uh, on what happens next. Um, but we're going to have to take a quick break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the January 6th insurrection and the Select House Committee, which is investigating the insurrection and has begun hearings to inform the public and the Department of Justice of what has been discovered up to this point. We've been talking this hour with Val Atkinson, who is a political science professor and author, a political activist, and co-host of the long-running and highly acclaimed Connections program, which airs on our sister network, Foxy 107-104, on Sunday mornings. We're going to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently A2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with our guests about the January 6th insurrection and the recent Select House Committee's hearing focusing on their investigation. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio Val Atkinson, who is a political science professor who has taught at many of the colleges and universities in this area. He is also a political activist and co-host of the highly acclaimed Connections Program, 
which airs on Sunday mornings and is part of our sister network, Foxy 107104. Um, Thou, Right before the break, you were talking about the, um, you were making a comparison between what happened during the Nixon impeachment proceedings. And one of the things that you noted was uh, one of the key Republicans told Nixon, you do not have my vote and you do not have the vote of many Republicans. That is not something that we have seen we saw during the Trump presidency. That is not something that we are seeing now. We're notwithstanding uh, Trump's claims about the election being rigged, being um, a sham. Uh, and, and actually, this is one of the things about the hearing that has come out, right? So Attorney General Barr told him, his advisors told him, the data people told him, the people who were closest to him and those that he should have relied upon for information were telling him that the election was not fraudulent and that he Uh, was not going to win and did not, in fact, win. Trump decided, though, to claim victory and to start this campaign saying that the election was rigged. Um, And notwithstanding that, you still don't have individuals in the Republican Party um, disassociating themselves with him. And that was one of the things that you saw with Nixon, which is why he resigned. Can you talk about um, why you think it is that notwithstanding everything that has already occurred with Trump, with his presidency, with the election, with the insurrection, that there is not this groundswell of opposition to Trump within the Republican Party? Well, I'd, I'd like to begin by talking about a movement that started even before Trump. Uh, we used to call it the Tea Party. Uh, they were right-wingers, uh, but they were, uh, to a degree, leaderless. And what helped Donald Trump propel himself to leadership in America was that he, he pulled the old through-the-woods trick. You know, people learned that uh, the best way to win a marathon is... Uh, cut through the woods and jump out front, claim yourself the winner. I like to call it uh, uh, the, the old piece uh, that the band leader used to tell people about, the drum major. What a drum major does is find a good parade, run out front and start high-stepping, right? And he becomes the leader of the parade. And Trump saw this. He saw that the Tea Party, could have been a piece in within the Republican Party that could win everything. And boy, was he right. Uh, he decided that he would make as one of his uh, requirements that you follow his lead 100% with no deviation. And that he had the 100% full support of the Tea Party, the right-wingers within the Republican Party. Now, in most states, we have what we call closed primaries. Uh, That means that if you're not a a Democrat, you can't vote in a Democratic primary. So in that case, whereas a state has a closed primary, uh, it's almost impossible 
for you to win if Trump doesn't want you to win because you only have a few people there and the far right wing of the Republican party has enough votes uh, to win the primary election. What Trump and his allies have been successful at doing is telling people running for office is that, you know, I have a million dollars that I'm gonna give to somebody running in your race. I'd like to give it to you. But if we can't come to an agreement, I'll give it to your opponent. Uh, that's enough to scare the Jesus out of somebody. And that's why all of these guys end up supporting Trump and his uh, uh, agenda. Uh, so there's no Democrats to help out in the race in those closed states. So you're left with a bunch of Republicans where the right wing is organized and runs everything so they know and they can count votes, they meaning Republicans, if they don't support Trump and his allies, you can't win the primary. And without winning the primary, it is impossible almost to win a general election. So that's where Trump gets his power in the Republican primary. What some Democrats are hoping is that some of these primary races are close, almost bitter, because it would make it more challenging for the Republicans to get back together during the general election. And the Democrats may have a better chance of winning at that time. The uh, select committee has, as you indicated earlier, done an outstanding job of presenting portions of their findings and conclusions. Um, have any of them surprised you thus far? Is there anything in the reporting that they have provided that you were not aware of? Unfortunately, Irv, I'd love to say yes, there has been, but no, there has not been, not for me. Uh, I can't say I was aware of every single detail, every tidbit of news that came out, but everything that has come out I've heard a little bit about that before, or it doesn't surprise me at all. And, and, and I think it was ill-advised for some of the people on the committee to talk about blockbusters that are gonna come out of this hearing and how it's gonna knock your socks off. It, you know, you should never over-promise and under-deliver. It should be just the other way around uh, when you're talking about these kinds of things. And, you know, the closest we've come to that is uh, what Liz Cheney showed us in film uh, yesterday or last night, uh, a few days ago, uh, when there was uh, an attorney talking about how he had advised uh, some of the people that were advising uh, the president. And uh, the language being used was interested, but the information was the same that we had expected all along. So no, I have not seen or heard any bombshells yet. I welcome them. I hope we do have some somewhere along the line. Now Val, you follow politics and what's going on in the government pretty closely. You're an expert in the field, you teach in the field, you speak on it. What are your thoughts or your impression about kind of the general population tuning in? So these hearings have been getting 
millions and millions and millions of views, um, some live, some watching it, you know, after the fact. Uh, do you think that the kind of average person may be surprised with the information and, and, and do you have any thoughts on uh, how the hearings might be impacting an average person who may not follow it as closely as, as you? I, I do think that there is a smithering of people, a small percentage of people that make up what we call, what I call the mythical middle. Uh, we used to call them swing voters, uh, independents, whatever. That number is really shrinking because of the excess polarization that we have in this country, politically speaking. So the number out there in the middle that you're trying to get somebody who happens to be a moderate to take a second look at the way things are going and maybe have a change of heart or change of mind, those, those numbers are few uh, and, and dwindling as we speak. So, but they, yeah, there'll be a few that'll say, oh, I didn't know it was this bad. Oh, I didn't know he had said that. Or this doesn't make sense now that you put it that way. Let me take a second look. Uh, but I'm saying, I'm not sure that's going to be enough. The hardcore right wing, it's nothing you can tell them. They are still arguing that one and one don't necessarily have to equal two. And if you're talking to a person of that ilk, Logic doesn't work. Uh, I, I'll have to steal a quote here uh, from one of my people that I didn't used to read, but I'm following now. George Will, who used to write uh, uh, for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he has a quote that says, it is very difficult to use logic to move someone off of a position that they arrived at illogically. And it, you just can't do it. You can't argue. You can't move some of those guys. And if you're trying to use the hearings to present fact and thinking they're going to look at this and say, oh, I never looked at it that way before. Oh, you're right. Let me change my mind. Let me take all of these uh, signs off of my window and all the Trump flags off of my front lawn, and I'm going to just be a regular American. Uh, well, I don't know if that's going to work. Well, along with along with that, and uh, and I underscore uh, the absence of the integrity that Richard Nixon finally uh, uh, presented uh, when he resigned. Uh, we don't find that characteristic in the uh, former uh, president, and in fact, he is uh, probably in a more revengeful mood and mode uh, than anyone that's ever been in uh, a position of power in the uh, government. And you have people that, uh, that are supporting uh, this uh, revenge notion uh, on his uh, part. Uh, so I guess this is kind of a two-part question is, uh, what, do you see anything positive coming out of these hearings that will sustain our democracy, or is this really the beginning of the end of the democracy as we know it, or as we have been led to believe exists? Being an optimist, Herb, I've got to say that I'm on the former side 
that talks about hopefully there is something positive that comes out of this to sustain uh, uh, democracy. It may be a drip drip in the beginning of one person here, one person there uh, coming over and saying, I, I don't support that anymore or, or whatever. I put a lot of faith in our young, uh, our young people who many, in many cases haven't even registered yet, much less voted. Uh, they are the ones who are gonna have to make the decisions as to where we go. Some of the people who are in the right wing of the Republican camp right now, I think we may be wasting our time trying to uh, get them to change their mind. I would spend my time talking to people who haven't been indoctrinated yet, who haven't bought the line, the hook, swallowed the thing, hook, hook line, and sinker. Um, I would concentrate on them, get them to see what's going on and how it affects their lives uh, in the future. One of the things, and we haven't talked about this, and I don't mean to be changing subjects, but one of the things that doesn't help that approach that I'm trying to share is this whole business of CRT, critical race theory. You can't have that and then try to impress young folks that they need to be on your side and think logically and do the right thing and be fair with people, but don't read these books over here and don't get involved in that. And this guy is lying when you see his lips moving. Uh, you can't do that. So we've got to do some changing ourselves. We have got to make sure that young folks understand the difference between truth and lies and that we try to do things to convince them to be a part of something good and wholesome instead of a bunch of lies and always just chasing the winner. Um, we've got to do that. I think that's where the answer lies, is in our young folk. Yeah, we, we have just a few minutes left, but I'd like you to kind of talk about the historical importance of this moment in the hearing, because I think it ties directly into your point about CRT, right? Um, when we're talking about critical race theory and the importance of it, it's about looking at history and, and that providing a context for where we are today. So we want our young people, we want all of our society to, to have an understanding of history. And so the moment that we're living in today and the evidence that's, that's coming out in these hearings will be viewed in a historical context at some point in the future. Can you talk about, even if we don't see, you know, the Justice Department bringing formal charges against Trump, even if we don't see prosecution of um, political folks, there is this is playing an important role in terms of the history of our country and and making that record. Can you just share your thoughts on the importance of that as we think about where we will be in you know, 5, 10, 20 years from now? Well, I think it's very important uh, because uh, this is a fight. We're in a fight now for the continuation of our democracy. If we are successful, I think our democracy will be even stronger. 
And we do not want to think about if we're not successful because we'll never get it back. If you lose democracy, you'll never ever get it back again. People will not vote you in again because the people that are in charge will not allow that. So I have got to think that we have got to be energized and motivated to do something akin to what the framers did in the first place. Uh, the people who threw the tea in the, the harbor in, 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 in Boston, uh, uh, Christopher Addicts who took the, one of the first shots in the Revolutionary War, all of those kinds of things, people who stood up and fight, who fought. Uh, it, when I look at uh, the military and all of the uh, black and brown people who fought, won the medals of honor and all of these kinds of things, this is all wrapped up in it. It's all what it's about in saving the democracy, uh, democracy saving our way of life, saving opportunities for people. And you've got to fight hard to keep it. As we used to say, democracy is not a spectator sport. You gotta get in, you gotta get involved and you gotta say, we're in it to win it. Well, Professor Atkinson, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your insights. And as Irv mentioned in his opening, you know, we're at the early stages of these hearings. So there are more weeks, there's more testimony, more evidence that will be coming out. And so we'd like to invite you back on the show for um, a further discussion of, of what these hearings bring us. So Professor Atkinson, Val Atkinson, he is a political science professor. He is an author, political activist, and co-host of the long-running and highly acclaimed Connections program, which airs on our sister network, Foxy 107-104, on Sunday mornings. Thank you again for being our guest. And thank you, our listening audience, of course, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find this show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.